Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Well, we're in, in Jude chapter 1. Let's, um, I'm going to read, we've, we've covered four verses. We're moving at warp 9 for this. Considering the very f- first Sunday we covered three words. So let's read verse 1 through 4. And I, I just want to tag a couple of things. And then we're going to read verse 5 through 7 for today. But I'm probably only going to get through verse 5 as far as, as teaching. But Jude, verse 1 says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. You know, the, the, the verse we just read a minute ago in Zechariah, where, where Zerubbabel spoke grace, grace to the mountain. That's exactly what Jude says here. We are called, we are sanctified, and then we're preserved. That's a whole deal. We, we, Jesus calls us, he sets us apart, and then he preserves you through the entire thing. So why worry? Uh, it, it's funny, Gina and I watched a, a movie, and I, I love any movie that Tom Hanks is in. I don't know what kind of a man Tom Hanks is, but I love his movies. He's just a great actor. But we watched Bridge of Spies, which is based on a true story. And, and, and it's this guy was got arrested in 1957. He was a, a Russian spy in the United States. And he's facing the death penalty. But he has this one line that he repeats like three times. Because Tom Hanks is dealing with him. He's his lawyer. And this guy's maybe facing death in the electric chair. And, and Tom Hanks keeps looking at him saying, why aren't you more concerned? And the guy just looks at him and he said, would it help? <laughs> and, and he's just so stoic. And, and it's, it's like... Everything that gets tense and everybody else is panicking and they'll look at him, why are you not about to panic? He said, would it help? Well, when we look at this, I'm called, I'm, I'm set apart by God, I'm preserved in Jesus Christ. Why get excited? It doesn't help. Panic doesn't help. Worry doesn't help. God's grace is at work. Then Jude goes on, he says, Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Not only has Jesus called me, sanctified me, and preserving me, but he's pouring out mercy and peace and love. It's like, wow, this is like the gift that keeps on giving. And it is. Verse 3 says, Beloved, while I was very diligent, that literally means I was anxious, I was very anxious to write to you concerning our common salvation. Instead, God dealt with me, and I had to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. And in verse 4, this is where I want to take a minute here, it says, for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. These ungodly men that God told them these guys are coming. We looked at, at Acts uh, chapter 20 when Paul was, was 
speaking to the church at Ephesus, the elders from the church of Ephesus. And he told them, look, guys, when I'm gone and I'm about to go to Jerusalem, I'm probably going to die. So I'm telling you, you got two places you're going to have problems. Men are going to come from the outside and attack your churches. And men are going to rise up on the inside of your churches and attack your churches. So you're going to be assaulted from outside and inside. Like, oh, wow, such an encouraging message, Paul. Thank you. But then he says, but I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. That's why I love that song. Give me the word. It's his word that tells me I'm called. It's his word that tells me I'm sanctified. It's his word that tells me I'm preserved. It's his, it's, it's his word that brings his grace, makes it alive. When, when the Bible says that the, the word of God is living and active, it brings his grace. It, it, it will take root in me and bring life to me. It's all his word. But <clears throat> these men, they do two things. And then and, and this is my point. When it says... They turn the grace of God into lewdness. Literally, that, that's talking about um, sexual freedom. It's talking about sex. It's talking about just anything goes. But it, but it really it goes beyond just a sexual message. It's just, it, it, it says that these men turn the grace of God and, and turn it on its head rather than the grace of God delivering you from sin so you can live above sin. It's they turn and say the grace of God means that there is no sin. You don't have to feel guilty about, grab a list. We'll, we'll take a cafeteria list. You name your sin. You name your weakness. It doesn't matter. There's no such thing as, as, as sin. Because God, Jesus conquered sin. Don't you know He conquered sin? So you can do whatever you want to do. It doesn't matter. It won't affect you. We're all going to get saved. Don't you know that? I mean, didn't, doesn't the Bible teach that Jesus bore the sins of the entire world? Well, why do I have to worry about sin? I'm going to get saved. Even if I believe in Buddha. Even if I worship Allah. It doesn't, none of that matters. In the end, God's going to reconcile us all because the blood of Christ covers everything. No. Dear God, no. The grace of God did pay for our sins, except for that one sin, which is the sin of saying, I don't believe that Jesus is the, is the reason that, that that price got paid. I know you, you, you paid the price for this present you're giving me, but I don't want it from you. I want it from another way. I want it my way. That's what this means. And they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ, they say it, it, it's not, it, it, I know Jesus did it, but, you know, there are a lot of ways to heaven. Now, here, here's what I want us to see. In and, and verse 5, this is where we're going today. Let's read that. Well, let's read, I'm going to read all the way through, through um, verse 7 to give you the whole context, and then we'll go back and look at verse 5. He said, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this. That's the tragedy of Jude. You guys knew this, and you've fallen away. You know, you, you, we all do it. I can remember being in high school, you know, 
We had those blocks of stone with the big chisels and the hammer where we took our notes, you know. That was a joke. That was a joke for my grandkids. But I remember being in high school, and, and one of the things I liked, because I'm, I'm a, as crazy as it seems, when it comes to words and to reading, because I've always been a readaholic, um, I, I used to love in English class to diagram a sentence. I could tell you every part of speech. I could tell you what they did, what their function was. But you know what? Come May of next year, I'm, I'm going to go to one of the few class reunions that I've been to because it's the 50th, which just shocks me. <laughs> but if, my, if one of my teachers was there and said, here, John, I want you to diagram this sentence, <laughs> I would have to look at him and say, um, I once knew that. I don't know that anymore. I don't know how to do that. Why? Because the last time I did that was 50 years ago. And I haven't done it. I really don't care to do it. It just it doesn't interest me anymore. These Christians that Jude is writing this to are in that boat. They knew it once. Why did they know it? It wasn't that they knew it between their ears. They knew it because they were practicing it and living it. And when they quit living it and practicing it every day, they forgot it. It's like a skill. You know, I used to play basketball, played baseball. I could sit, I would sit as a teenager and just shoot hundreds and hundreds of free throws. And, and the, 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 the coach would tell you, same motion every time. Never alter it. Never alter it. Go through the same routine. Do it always. And when you, when you finally figure it out, it just becomes muscle memory. But you know what? Can't do that anymore. Why? Because I don't practice anymore. If I don't practice it, I forget it. It's a skill. So is living in Christ a skill. If you don't do it, you lose it. Let's back up. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under the darkness for the judgment of that great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. He gives us three examples. First one, Israel, God brought them out of Egypt. They went into the wilderness. They wouldn't believe Him. And so He had to destroy that generation. The second one, there were angels. That we, it, the Bible talks about in Genesis that left their habitation, came down, commingled with women, gave birth to giants. And God said, and, and we get from the book of Enoch, which we'll talk about later, there were, there were 200 of them according to Jewish tradition. And God has reserved them. They are chained, and they've been chained, and they won't come out of those chains until God unchains them to throw them into the lake of fire. And then the third one was the example of Sodom and Gomorrah and two other cities that I've lost their names now. They got judged because of their immorality. 
Well, I want to look at, at, at Israel to begin with. And here's the question, because I'll be honest with you, this one bothers me. This one twists on my theology really hard. The coming out of Egypt is a type of being born again. And yet, we just talked about earlier, Zechariah 4, God told Zerubbabel, speak grace, grace to this. In, in, in verse um, uh, 2 or 1 of Jude, he said, I've called you, I've set you apart, and I'm preserving you. And yet, he gives us the example just a couple of verses farther down. I brought these people, my people, that I call by my name. Remember um, 2 Chronicles 7.14? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, turn from their wicked ways, and pray, then I'll do these things. God said, because you guys, I brought you out, I delivered you from, the, from, from sin. Because remember, coming out of Egypt is a type of the new birth. But you wouldn't believe me. I destroyed you. Destroyed that entire generation. And I'm thinking, where's the preservation? What's going on here, God? Well, here, here's what I see. Let's go to 1 John chapter 4. <clears throat> verse 1 through 8, I'm not going to go through all of that. Verse 1 through 8 talks about, it's a section of John where John's talking about uh, testing spirits. And any spirit that doesn't confess that Jesus came in the flesh, <coughs> that is the spirit of Antichrist. Well, John mentioned this because he was dealing with the, the problem of Gnosticism. The Gnostics, <clears throat> the Gnostics believed that there was spirit and there was flesh, and flesh could never attain perfection. So they, they looked at Jesus and said, yeah, he came in the appearance of a man, but he wasn't really a man. Because he was God incarnate. He was God, and, he, and as God, as the second person of the Godhead, he paid the price for our sins, but he only appeared to be in our, a fleshly body. He was not truly human. Because if he was human, he could not have paid the price for sin. And John's saying, no. If that's your stand, then you are wrong. You have to believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He didn't give up any of his, uh, any of his uh, uh, attributes of being deity, and he didn't give up any of his attributes of being a human. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. That is an oxymoron. It cannot be. You cannot be a human because to be a human means you are limited. To be God means you have no limits. Those two cannot meet. And yet, the Bible says they did. This is one where you just have to say, I don't get it. I don't understand it. It's beyond my capacity, but I accept it by faith. That's what John's saying. But after he deals with this, he gives them this illustration. And we're going to go back to school here for a minute. And we're going to go back to elementary school. So we're going to have some hand motions and you have to play along. I don't care if you are my age or older. Hand, you know, 
we're, we're going to do this just like they're doing upstairs in children's church. Verse 7. We're going to read verse 7 and 8, and then I'm going to show you something. Verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Very simple passage, right? Now this is what I want you to do. And you can follow along with me. Put your hands out in front of you. I'm going to read this. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Everyone who loves is born of God. Raise a hand. Left hand is born of God. And knows God. Right hand, up. Now we're going to look, read verse 8. He who does not love does not know God. Lower your right hand. For God is love. In other words, you can be born of God and not know God. There again. How can you do that? Thank you for those of you that participated. What John is saying here, and it doesn't mean that you don't know God in the sense that, that, that you haven't accepted God as your Savior, haven't accepted Jesus as your Savior. He's saying there, there is a, a continuation. Same principle from Zechariah 4.7. Grace started it, grace continues it, grace will finish it. Jesus is the Alpha, the Omega. He started this thing, He's going to finish this thing. You get born again... Because you realize you need a Savior and you accept that Jesus is that, that Savior and you exercise faith in that. But that doesn't mean you know God. And here's my proof. For those of you that have never been married, this might not mean anything, but those of you that are, this is how it works. You meet someone. You get to know them. You come to a realization, I want to spend the rest of my life with this person. And you get married. Why do you get married? Because you love them, you want to join with them, become one flesh. You, the, the, the wife, and this is the whole principle, <clears throat> the wife takes on the husband's name, not because of the patriarchy, not because men dominate women, but because you are, you are now saying we are not two separate people. We are one. But you know what? When you get married, you have no idea who that person is. None. And, I will and I'm, I'm going to pick on the ladies. You get married, this woman comes down the aisle. Man, she is dressed to the nines. She's got makeup on. She's beautiful. You stand there. I remember, you know, I don't remember a lot about my, my own wedding. I was a little tired and a little shell-shocked, you know, which most brides and grooms are. But I remember being at, at, especially at Tiffany's wedding, I remember watching Matt. That boy almost, his knees almost buckled when she walked in that church. I mean, you could just see it's like, oh. And I'm, of course, I'm walking her down the aisle and I'm about to, fall apart because my knees start to buckle when I see his reaction. But you know what? You take that beautiful bride and you go off on your honeymoon and when you wake up the next morning, you both look at each other and all that makeup's on the pillowcase 
and you both have morning breath and your hair's poking out everywhere and all you can think about is I gotta get to the bathroom because I gotta go pee. <laughs> Suddenly, you get to know marriage is not perfection. When, when you were dating, you dated each other and when you started getting tired, you ended the evening. She went to her house, you went to, to your house. And we rested. And we came back together when we were both rested, both showered, both cleaned up. She put her makeup on, you shaved, you put some good smell on so you smelled good. And you were on your best behavior. And when you get tired, you go to your separate corners. And suddenly you get married and there's no neutral corners. You gotta live together. And suddenly you realize, and then this is where the, the tables get turned, suddenly that wife realizes that this guy, that, that, that when he shaves and he puts on that cologne, he really looks handsome. He doesn't look quite so handsome in the morning. Especially when he comes walking out in the living room in his underwear. And he hasn't shaved and he hasn't bathed. And you're thinking, Wow, welcome to life. <laughs> now fortunately, Jesus never has morning breath. Not now, he's in a resurrected body. But when, when, you, when you get married to him, when you get born again, you know some about him, but you don't really know him. And the proof that you are getting to know him is you start walking in love. If you're not walking in love, you don't know Him yet. Now, you're saved, but you don't know Him. That's what happened to the Israelites. They knew that the God of Moses had delivered them. And that God had, had come. He had judged every uh, form of, of deity that the Egyptians had, culminating in the last one. Because here again, John 10.10 10 changed my life. There is a thief, and Jesus is not him. But then the, the, the angel of death comes in and kills the firstborn of this entire nation. And again, my theology is like, wait a minute, I don't like that. But God was judging the nation of Egypt because the last God, the supreme God, was Pharaoh himself, who was God incarnate. He was the, the, the sun god, Ra, in the flesh. That was their belief. And when, if I'm Pharaoh, I'm the manifestation of our God Ra. And when I die, which that ought to tell you something about Ra's power, because I'm going to die. Every Pharaoh died and we built big monuments to them. But when I die, my firstborn son is going to become raw in the flesh. That's why it was the firstborn son that died. Now, the reason that, that's, that the, the, my theology needs to change around that is God judged Egypt's firstborn sons but he had already judged his firstborn son. He did that before the foundation of the world. 
So it wasn't unjust of him to judge those, those kids because he judged his own son. Amen? The nation of Israel had seen all of these naturalistic nature gods judged. God won that victory. And they come out, and the very first thing they do is they start griping. Well, thank you, Lord, you brought us out of Egypt, and now you're going to let us die in the desert. <clears throat> and we grab our heads and think, how could they be so stupid? And then we go home and we get a bill, and it says overdue. And we think, God, how can you let me fail? We're no different than the Egyptians. And God brought them, the, remember, the, 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 will, the trip through the wilderness was, only, it had to last about a year or so. It was only like a two-week trek. But in that, in that time span, God had to give them the law. He, they had to take that law, build the tabernacle, and then God wanted to teach them. He took about a year teaching them how to serve Him through the tabernacle. So it, this, this journey should have been about a year, maybe two years long, to learn about God's law and about the tabernacle. And then once they got all that and, and figured out that this is the God of the universe, every time we need to move, this pillar of fire moves up, the cloud moves up, and it starts moving, and we follow it. And when it stops, we, set, we, we make camp. And we get up in the morning and there's food all over the, the ground. We don't know what it is. That's why they called it manna. Manna literally means, what is it? <laughs> so they'd get up and say, what are we having for breakfast? What is it? <laughs> well, we had that yesterday. Well, you're going to have it today. And you're going to have it again tomorrow. And if you try to keep a little bit of it overnight, it's gonna, in the morning it's going to stink and have worms in it. Except for Saturday. On Friday, you need to collect enough for Friday and Saturday, and then it won't get worms that day. But then on the Sabbath, you don't go collect food. You don't work. And I'll preserve that. And I know these people, their brains just, it, it put them in a twist. But they refused to believe. Hebrews chapter 4 I'm, let me read this from the message. This is Hebrews 4, verse 8 through 11. Um, well, let me read it first in the, the King James, or New King James. If I can. It is still in my Bible. Start in verse 8. It says, For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. This is what tells us this concept of resting is for us today, as well as it was for the Israelites. Verse 10, For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent, again, we're going to be eager to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. The message reads this way, and so this is still a living promise. It wasn't canceled at the time of Joshua. Otherwise, God wouldn't keep renewing the appointment for today. Remember, the Bible in several places says today is the day of salvation. 
Today is the day to enter into his rest. The promise of arrival and rest is still there for God's people. God himself is at rest. Remember, when, when, when Jesus ended the, the, the creation, it says on the seventh day, God rested. Does that mean God's not doing anything? No, he's been, been busy from that day on. He's been doing a lot of stuff, but he rested because his faith was extended towards everything that's going on. It says, and at the end of the journey, we'll surely rest with God, so let's keep at it and eventually arrive at the place of rest, not drop out through some sort of disobedience. What it's saying is we need to take God's promises, what we sang. Give me the word. When I get the word, I have to mix faith with it. On into to Hebrews, and I forget exactly where the reference is now, um, it says that, that it's through faith and patience that we inherit the promises. We have to accept that what the Word says, I have now, even though I don't see it. And even, but, if, but, but I'm going to rest in that. Well, does that mean I just don't do anything? No, there are things to do. For one thing, when I get up in the morning, i got to start all over. Okay, it's a new day. I'm still believing that I have it. I got it yesterday. I got it today. God called me. He's given it to me. He set it apart for me. And He will bring it and bring the manifestation. Remember, it's not my job to make it manifest. It's my job to believe God has given it to me and it will manifest in His time. Amen? When I do that, then I will see the results. There... Um, example was they didn't believe him. They wouldn't believe him. When it, when, after they had gone through all this and, and God brought them up to the, the border of Jordan, he said, look, you've, just, you've, been, I've, you've been dependent on me for everything. I've fed you. I've brought you water. I've, your clothes haven't worn out. Nothing has, you haven't had to do much of anything. Other than I've asked you to believe me, and you failed that test a lot of times, but here's the last test. There's a promised land. There's giants over there. You, I'm, I've given you that land. <clears throat> now you're going to have to go in and take it. Well, now wait a minute. If you gave it to me, why do I have to fight a battle? Because there's enemies in the land. But it is mine. That's why... When, when the Word says that health is mine, prosperity is mine, I have to believe Him, but I have to work it out. I have to walk it out. Faith, it starts with faith, but then I walk that faith out. And I primarily do that in the New Covenant through the words of my mouth and through my actions. You know the old story, um, the uh, uh, congregation was in the midst of a drought and they all came together to pray for rain. And, and they're all praying for rain and they're declaring we're going to have rain. And the little boy looks back and he says, Preacher, i got a question. You're all believing for rain, but not one person brought an umbrella. You have to ask, were they really believing? Well, I'm not going to judge them, but, but you know, is it true? Now, now here is where, where it comes for us. 
God promised and fulfilled his salvation at the new birth, but we need to daily renew this. In the, the, the letters to the church, Revelation chapter 2, this is the church at Ephesus. This had Paul as their pastor for three years. Three years, the apostle Paul, with all his revelations, sat and taught these people, and taught them, and taught them, and taught them. And yet, down the road, Paul's gone. John writes this, starting in verse 4. God has commended them, but he said, Nevertheless, this I have against you, that you have left your first love. What's our first love? Loving Jesus and loving other people. Remember, therefore, where you have, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You have to first know that you have fallen. I'm not walking in faith and I'm not walking in love. I'm born again, but I don't know God. I'm born of God, but I don't know God. Why do, how do I know I don't know God? Because I'm not walking in love. I'm angry at everybody. Well, you want a, you want a, a, a spirit that, that our world is walking in today? Everybody's offended. And I'm offended that they're offended. That's where we are. If you're walking in offense, if you're walking mad at people constantly, it's those daggone Democrats. No, it's those daggone Republicans. No, it's those ignorant people that don't belong to a party. Well, you pretty much, you know, mentioned everybody there. It's, all, it, it, it's Washington. It's Indianapolis. It's the State House. No. Pogo wrote it down. I have met the enemy, and it are us. We are the problem. I am my greatest enemy. Why? Because I won't walk in love. Let me read Revelation 2, verse 4 and 5 out of the Amplified. But I have this charge against you, that you have left your first love. You have lost the depth of love that you first had for me. So remember the heights from which you have fallen and repent. Change your inner self, your old way of thinking, your sinful behavior. That sounds a lot like Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. <clears throat> Seek God's will. And do the work you did at first, when you first knew me. Otherwise, I will visit you and remove your lampstand, the church, its impact from its place, unless you repent. As a church, local church, as a person in the body of Christ, in a local church, in a part of the, the larger church, we don't have an impact in our world because we're not walking in the love and the power of God. That's just a fact. The reason our country is screwed up is because our, the church in our country is screwed up. And until we get the church right, the country can't be right, and the church can't be right until I get right. And if I can't walk in love with you, how am I going to walk in love with other people? So I have to change me first. God, I want revival. I want revival in our nation. Well, maybe you ought to have a revival in your own heart. 
Well, but I just don't feel it. Well, stir it up. Paul said that to Timothy. Stir up the gift that's within you. Stir it up. He also said this <clears throat> to the church at Laodicea. This is in um, Jude, or excuse me, getting ahead of myself. Revelation chapter 3, and, and I'm going to read it in the New King James, and I want to read it in the message. He says, because you say... I am rich and become wealthy, have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You want a description of the American church? I'm rich. I'm wealthy. I don't need anything. Really, when you say that, just write it down. You're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. If you haven't been rebuked by God lately, maybe you're not listening to God because He said, if I love you, I'm going to rebuke you. I'm going to tell you, this is not right in your life. And I can tell you right now, it doesn't matter how far you grow, He's still going to correct you. He asks you to grow. But I'm full grown. It's like coming to me. I'm 66 years old. About to turn, no, yeah, about to turn 67. And my wife looks at me and says, John, grow up. Grow up? How do, how do I grow up? I'm fully grown. No, you're not. No, you're not. And, and I'm, I said she does because we live together. But, but let me tell you, if God's not telling me to grow up, then I'm not listening. Why? Because I'm not, I haven't arrived. My body may have grown up. It may have grown old. But on the inside, I still haven't grown up. I've still got ways to go. I'm still not perfected. This is the message. <clears throat> well, let me go on and read verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. We've used that, that, that verse right there in evangelism a lot. <clears throat> God is standing at your door and knocking. He wants you to invite him in. That's not written to unbelievers. That's written to the church at Laodicea. Let me in. You know, Brother Hagin used to say, There's a, there are a lot of churches they wouldn't know the Holy Ghost if they met Him walking down the street with a red hat on. I never really understood the red hat reference. But I do know that there are a lot of churches that Jesus hasn't been in for a long time. And there, there, there's, there's, there's two different extremes of that. There's the ones who he hasn't been in there and they're just loosey-goosey, anything goes, everybody's going to get saved. And there's the other extreme. We got rules and regulations and by God, you'll, you will adhere to our rules and regulations and we'll boot you out, you sinner. They're both evil. Not wrong, evil. That's not Jesus. Neither one of them is Jesus. You don't judge other people and you don't, you don't just let people go off and do anything they want to. There are things that God's telling us live this way and walk in love, 
But we also can't be vindictive and bitter and angry at people that don't have the same revelation of their lifestyle that we have. We have to walk in love. Amen? Now, here's the, 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 the final example, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to have to skip a bunch of this. <clears throat> and I'm just going to tell you this story. We're going to go to 2 Kings and read um, 2 Kings 6, verse 25, just to get a reference. But, but in 2 Kings, Ahab had been king, was king, Ben-Hadad is the king of Assyria, and they have come in, and they're just going to destroy Israel. And God turns the tables on Ben-Hadad, and Ben-Hadad gets destroyed. And Ahab wins a big victory, and Ben-Hadad tucks his tail and runs back to Assyria. And Ahab and, and the people of, of the northern kingdom rejoice. And then a few years later, Ahab's dead, he's gone. There's another king, and I don't remember who the king is now. But suddenly Ben-Hadad's got all his power back. He's rebuilt his armies and he comes against Syria again. Or comes against um, the, the northern kingdom of Israel the second time. And the second time he besieges them. And because they have fallen farther into sin than they even did with Ahab. And believe me, that's fallen into a little bit of sin. Things are rough. Things are bad. Verse 25 says, One-fourth of a cob of dove droppings will sell for five shekels of silver. One-fourth of a cob, that's about half a, a, a cup. They're, they're selling in their food markets dove poop. A half cup is going to cost you $1.25. I don't know, I've been hungry. I've gone on some extended fasts. I've never been hungry enough that I looked at dove droppings and thought, that looks good. You've got to be starving to think about eating dove droppings. And yet, they're doing it. It's, it's being sold. They have an established price for dove droppings. They're desperate. And the king looks at his men and he says, Look, we're about to go under. We're all going to die. When Ben-Hadad finally breaks through that, that gate, we're all dead. Because for one thing, we're, we're so weak we can't fight back. But I tell you one thing, I'm not dying until I take the, prof, the prophet Elisha out with me. I'm killing that old man. Wow. <laughs> Wouldn't you love to have been Elisha? Well, Elisha had already been reading Ben-Hadad's mail. He also knew the king of Israel. So in, in, in chapter 7, we're going to look at verse 1 and 2. The king comes to Elisha. And he brings some soldiers with him. And one of the soldiers opens the door and Elisha or his, Elisha's friend closes the door on him and traps him in the door. And then Elisha is talking to this king. Verse 1, Elisha says, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow. Remember, they're selling dove poop, $1.25 for a half cup. Come get it, really tastes good. Tomorrow, tomorrow, at this time, two gallons, that's what a sia is, two gallons of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, a quarter. Tomorrow you're going to be able to buy two gallons of the finest flour for a quarter. Today, you're eating dove poop, half a cup, $1.25. And you'll be able to buy four gallons of barley for a shekel. 
at the gate of Samaria. So the officer whose hand the king leaned on, this is the guy that came that the, the king was going to say, take Elisha's head off. That man looks at Elisha and he said, look, if the Lord could open the windows of heaven, how could that be? And Elisha looked right back at him. He's, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. You're going to see that this, what I just said, I just gave you the word of the Lord. And because you didn't believe me, you didn't mix faith with the word of the Lord, you're going to see God make the provision, but you don't get to enjoy that provision. And the next day, this we're going to drop down to um, verse 17. Between verse 2 and verse 17, God moves that night on four lepers who are sitting outside the gate and saying, look, we're, we're going to die here. We got one of two choices. We either go in the city where there's no food and they're going to kill us because we're lepers and we're trying to steal food, or we can go to the Syrian camp and they probably will kill us too. We're dead either way. Let's at least go to the Syrian camp. Maybe they'll have mercy on us. And they walked to the Syrian camp and the Syrians heard an entire army coming. God made the footsteps of four lepers, four of the most rejected people in all of Israel, made them think there's an entire army coming. And they turned and fled. Those that didn't flee turned on each other. And suddenly the entire Syrian camp, all of the goods are available for free. Verse 17 now the king had appointed the officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. The king said, look, you heard what Elijah said, but I'm telling you, these people are starving. They are going to rush that camp. I want you to guard the gate. You, you set some order here. You only let them go and let them go in an orderly fashion. We did the same thing. The American army did the same thing in World War II when they opened the... the um, um, concentration camps their hearts were feed these people give them all the food they can eat and the doctors came and said no 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 you cannot do that you'll kill them you have to introduce food back to them slowly we have to we have to give them a little broth we have to give them a little bit of bread and then introduce a little bit of protein we have to take this slow or their bodies won't be able to handle it that's what the king is trying to do with this guard let them go slow what happened? They trampled that guard to death. They ran over him, smashed him, killed him. But before he died, he saw there's all kinds of provision. What Elijah said yesterday that I doubted, God brought to pass. And I'm dying. And I'm not going to get to eat any of it. That's our lesson here. God did the same thing with the Israelites. He brought them out of Egypt. He provided for them in the wilderness. He said, go in and conquer the land. And they said, we can't do it. We can't do that, Lord. We're not good enough. We're not strong enough. We're not big enough. And he said, if I let this group go in, they're going to lose. Big time. And my whole plan for my nation is going to be fouled up and fail. So guess what? You all get to die in the wilderness. 
I'm going to hold you in the wilderness for 40 years till every one of you is dead and your kids will go in and conquer the land. I don't, I'm, <clears throat> I want my kids to conquer the land. I want my grandkids, I want my son and my daughter to prosper more than I ever did. But you know what? I want my grandkids to prosper more than their mom and dad do. I want my great-grandkids to outdo my grandkids. I want it to just get better and better and better and better as we go on. That's my desire. But God said, I can't let you all go in because you don't have any faith. You've proved to me you won't believe my word. <clears throat> Ten times, or no, sorry, eight times in Exodus, God's told Pharaoh, let my people go. The first time he said, let them go that they can hold a feast for me in the wilderness. All of the rest of them, the other, the, the other there are, I've got seven references here, or eight, where God's command to Pharaoh was, let my people go that they may serve me. They got out in the wilderness and they forgot. We're here for one reason. We're here to serve God. No other reason that we exist on the face of the planet except to serve God. How much more us, we have been called, we have been set apart, we are being preserved. He is showering mercy and grace and, and prosperity out on us. Why? So we can serve Him. But if we refuse to believe Him, we'll be destroyed. That's exactly what Jude is saying. You have a choice before you. God has called you, set you apart, sanctified you, and He's preserving you. Are you going to serve Him or are you going to be like the nation of Israel in the wilderness that He had to destroy so He didn't screw up the whole thing? That's what He's saying to us through Jude. Your choice. My choice. And every day I get to make that choice brand new. And at noon today, I get to make that choice again. And at 1 o'clock I get to make it again. And again, and again, and again. I get to choose. Am I going to rest in His promise and believe what He said? Or am I going to say, Lord, that's just hard. That's too hard. It's too much. I can't make that sacrifice. And Jesus, I, I know, sometimes He just has to grab His head and look down. What do you mean you won't make that sacrifice? I gave up heaven. I came and lived as a man. I died a horrible death. I went into hell and conquered it for you. And then I came out of hell and conquered death. And I ascended into high. And when I ascended, I took you with me. And you're telling me that what I'm asking you to do is too much? Too much? Let me, let me put it in terms. Gage is the baby. Six years old. If someone came in right now and threatened all of us, and I knew they were aiming at him, I'd sacrifice myself in a heartbeat for that little boy. Now let me ask you, what if I had my worst enemy came in and I said, I love you so much, I'll put him on a cross. I will nail him to a board and watch him bleed and die and suffer for you. And then later on, that person came back to me and I said, will you do me a favor? And they'd say, no, it's too big a favor. 
Are you kidding? I sacrificed my grandson for you. And you won't do me this favor? How arrogant can you be? And yet that's what Jesus does to us. I gave everything up for you and all I want you to do is live this life for me and believe me. And you saying, it's too hard. It's too hard. God, forgive us. It's not hard. And then, then the amazing thing is, He said, if you'll just step out and believe me, I'll give you the ability to get it done. You don't have to do it in your own strength. I'll do it. I'll put the effort. If you need money, I'll give you money. If you need willpower, I'll give you the willpower. Whatever you need, I've made it available. And we stand back and say, no, it's not convenient. God forgive us. And I'm not laying that at your feet. I'm laying that at my feet. What have I not given up that he's asked me to give up? How can I be that arrogant? And yet I do it. I do it all the time. You do it all the time. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that to condemn us. I'm saying that to challenge us. What has God asked you to do? If He's asked you to do something, you better hit your knees and say, Yes, Lord, I'm willing. You gave up everything for me. How could I not give up everything for you? If we can't, there's no hope. There's a lost, dead, dying world out there that needs us. He did all this so we could serve Him, so we could reach out to them. And yet we get an attitude about them. Jesus went to the cross for him. Are you willing to go to cross for him? You willing to sacrifice your life for him? You willing to sacrifice your conveniences for them? If not, then I have a feeling destruction may wait in the wings for us. It did for them in Jude. Remember, this is not Old Testament. This is Jude verse 5. This is a New Testament writer writing to New Testament believers. They were an example. You've got to be willing to do what they didn't do. Because if you do what they did, you're going to get the same end. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at fccindianapolis.com.